It's time to talk about all things mental health. This is Get Mental with Cecile Ahrens. As a seasoned licensed therapist, Cecile is the owner of Transcend Therapy and is here to inform, guide, and connect you on the big and small everyday happenings that affect our mental and emotional well-being. Cecile is passionate about making a lasting and positive impact on people, connecting them to their own wisdom and strength while having a little fun along the way. Get ready to challenge the power of your human spirit. It's time to get mental. And now here's your host, Cecile Ahrens. All the things they say should matter, corrupted by the senseless chatter. Hi everybody, welcome to Get Mental. Thank you so much for being here. I have a very important subject that, you know, I'm surprised that I haven't talked about this in the year and a half that I've been doing this episode, and it's definitely more than overdue for us to cover one of the most common mental health conditions in the country, and I would argue probably the world, is anxiety. So today I'm going to spend time talking about anxiety disorders, differentiating healthy anxiety from unhealthy anxiety, talking about the types of anxiety disorders, and um, you know, talking about coping skills and just giving you some valuable information on kind of the, the risk factors and the causal factors for anxiety, okay? So, some statistics, and I'm drawing this information from the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. Did you know that adults, at some point in their lives, meaning you and I, um, will experience anxiety at some point in our lives? Up to 30% of adults will experience anxiety at some point in our lives. So it's very, very common. And like I said, it is the most common of all mental health disorders in our country, and I would argue the globe. About 40 million adults in the United States, age 18 and older, um, report to, to have experienced symptoms of an anxiety disorder. Okay, and the key word here that I want you guys to pay attention to is disorder. By the time you get a, defin- a diagnosis of an anxiety disorder, that means your symptoms reach the level of the diagnostic criteria. And that criteria will depend on the type of diagnosis or the type of anxiety disorder that your health professional thinks you may have. So this, is, this isn't just like having, you know, anxiety Uh, situational anxiety, okay? The statistics are saying that 40 million Americans and 30% of adults will experience a full-blown anxiety disorder. So that's pretty, pretty serious and pretty chronic, okay? And again, I'm gonna talk about healthy versus unhealthy anxiety to really help you guys grasp this concept. Um, Anxiety disorders are highly treatable. That's the good news. There are many things that we can do now that we know work to help you manage symptoms and sometimes resolve or eliminate certain symptoms. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later. But first, I want to spend some time just talking about what anxiety essentially is. So anxiety, healthy anxiety, let's start with that, is essentially a normal natural response to a real threat or danger, okay? It's normal for us to feel afraid if our life is truly in danger, for example, or if you lost your, you know, car keys and you're running late for a very important meeting, right? Those are normal Uh, reactions. Uh, Anxiety can be seen as a normal reaction to those types of conditions. What anxiety isn't, um, when when anxiety becomes unhealthy is when it's out of proportion to the event. So meaning, you know, the level and intensity of anxiety that you feel is out of proportion or excessive to the stressor that you're experiencing. So for example, if you have a fear of public speaking 
and the level of anxiety that you feel around that is a level 10 out of 0 to 10, where 10 is the highest level of anxiety you can imagine, then 10 is an excessive response to public speaking, right? Because public speaking, as you know, as anxiety producing um, as it might be to most of us, it shouldn't be a 10 because 10 is the highest level of anxiety you could ever imagine, right? It's out of proportion. 10 should be for like, if someone's about to, if someone has a gun in your to your head, for example, right? Hopefully I didn't trigger anyone there. But that's what we mean by out of proportion response. You know, another example is somebody cuts you off in traffic, right? And if your response is road rage and high anxiety, that's an out of proportion response, you know, compared to the when you base it on the fact that this person did cut you off, but in essence, all they did was cut you off. So your response was definitely the, the punishment doesn't fit the crime, so to speak. Okay, so that's when you know it's unhealthy, it's out of proportion, it's irrational, it's excessive, it's chronic, it's debilitating. It's limiting, meaning your life starts to get smaller because you're trying to avoid certain people, places, and things just to manage your anxiety, just to feel calm and safe. So this is often seen with people who have like specific phobias. Like for example, if you have a fear of driving, I have a client that I, uh, you know, I've been helping her for a couple of years now. She has a, a fear of driving, specifically on the freeways. So that's a form of anxiety where it could really limit your quality of life and your daily activities, right? Um, you know it's unhealthy anxiety when there are negative consequences to you, your health, your, your loved ones, and just an overall diminished quality of life. Those are markers. Those are real indicators that the anxiety you're feeling is beyond what's normal and beyond what's healthy for you. Because remember, healthy anxiety exists to protect us. So healthy anxiety is protective. Meaning if you, if you see a car about to hit you, well, healthy anxiety will tell you to get out of the way. And that's what we want, right? It activates our fight or flight response in an appropriate way at the appropriate time. And then when the threat is gone, so is the anxiety. That's another way to tell that you're having a healthy, normal response. With excessive and unhealthy anxiety, specifically anxiety disorders, the level of anxiety you feel uh, maintains or remains despite the threat no longer being there, right? Your brain can't discern real danger versus perceived danger. Again, your brain is having a hard time discerning real danger, a real threat versus a perceived or anticipated threat, okay? So I'm gonna break that down even even further. So a lot of times when you have anxiety, you have a lot of what we call anticipatory anxiety. And so anticipatory anxiety is basically that, you're anticipating. Sometimes that's healthy, right? So for example, if you, you know, if you just went for your board exam and you're really anxious about the results because I mean, your life's work depends on it, right? That level of anticipatory anxiety is normal, healthy, to be expected. Um, but if you're having a level of anticipatory anxiety where, you know, you're having physical symptoms, you're throwing up, you're about to have a panic attack, you're lightheaded, um, you can't focus, you're, you know, I don't know, just being really, um, sometimes it's dangerous. Like if you're driving, I've certainly experienced that before and you're just not present. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're just, yeah, you're just functioning in a way that is not uh, optimal for you. That's when you know that that level of anticipatory anxiety, although to be expected for you to have a degree of it, it's reached to the point where it's become unhealthy, unmanageable, and sometimes unsafe for you, okay? And this is also when people sometimes start to, you know, in their effort to reduce the intensity of the anxiety, and the discomfort of it starts to take substances, you know? And there's no judgment there, right? Like, 
I, I get it. Like, you know, you have to do what you have to do, what you think you have to do to, um, to self-soothe and self-medicate and help yourself. And towards the end, I'm going to talk about healthier coping skills, just to give you guys some hope and real information that this stuff is really manageable, it's treatable, and there's lots of things we can do now in the mental health industry, and you can do now without seeing a therapist to help you manage these um, often very debilitating symptoms. So, again, um, anxiety is a healthy response when there's an actual threat or danger, and it dissolves once the danger or threat is gone, okay? Chronic unhealthy anxiety, the symptoms persist regardless of um, the threat really not being there or the threat never ever being proven. So an example of that would be health anxiety, okay? Also known as hypochondria. So this type of anxiety basically presents as constant worry and fear and prediction that you are ill or sick or that something is medically wrong with you and the doctors just haven't found it yet. You have a hard time believing, you know, a professional's medical findings or opinion. You might question tests and medical results. It's just you're constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop despite the data that is suggesting the opposite. Okay, so again, that's your brain having a hard time differentiating fact from feelings and real threat from perceived threat, right? So the hallmark of anxiety is what we call catastrophic thinking. So catastrophic thinking, if you just kind of break down that word, the root word of catastrophic is catastrophe. So basically your brain is constantly thinking about the worst case scenario, okay? You are fast forwarding and creating a story that usually ends in something catastrophic. So for example, and, and I suffer from this from time to time. Um, so for example, if, you know, I'm calling my husband, for example, and he doesn't pick up after, you know, a certain time, my brain sometimes might go to, oh my God, did he, was there an accident? Did he, you know, is he okay? Could he be dead? I mean, that's how, you know, that's how quickly the brain can start to create these stories that have no basis, no basis whatsoever. It's fear-based, okay? That's what fear does. And anxiety is basically anxiety disorder, if I, if I may correct myself. An anxiety disorder is basically looking at the world through the eyes of fear. Looking at the world, looking at the situation through the filter of fear. So imagine how stressful that is. You know, give yourself some compassion and some grace if you are experiencing this. That's really hard to move through the world with that kind of pressure, with that kind of hypervigilance and fear. And that's also what anxiety does, is it, it makes us hypervigilant, you know? And what that essentially means is it puts you on edge. It makes you screen your environment. And a lot of this is kind of an automatic response because you're wired, you know, to, to be afraid. So your system is thinking, there's danger, I gotta protect you, so let's go screen the environment, let's screen everyone and everything so that we can make sure you're safe, right? Again, in this situation, your brain can't tell the difference between real danger and perceived danger. It's like stuck in a feedback loop that keeps filtering everything as dangerous, especially for those people who have post-traumatic stress disorder. This becomes even more pronounced, this hypervigilance, okay? And then also what anxiety does is it creates so many other issues because remember, your body is constantly feeling under threat. It's constantly feeling in danger. So from a cellular level, right, all your organs are kind of bracing for some 
bad thing to happen. So it's, it's never really just fully relaxed. And you'll, you'll see that in the way that you move, the way you function, the way you perform, the way you process information. Simply, another kind of simple way to assess this, you'll see it in how you eat, you see it in your sleep patterns, you see it in how you talk, you see it in your, I mean, you feel it in your heart. If you're constantly anxious, your heart's beating kind of moderately fast all the time. And then it spikes up when um, the more anxious you become. And so sometimes, you know, people in my office, if they're really, really anxious, I can't even get a word in. And that I'm not offended by that. I know what's happening, right? There's a, there's a real kind of arrest in the brain that's happening, that's creating all of those symptoms. So be kind to yourself, be gentle, like I always say, and just know that there are things we can do to help you, okay? And that you're not alone. Again, this is the most common mental health condition in the country, and again, I would say in the world, right? Most, at least 30% of adults are gonna experience a form of anxiety disorder in their lifetime. And I will self-disclose, I used to be super anxious, especially when I was young in my early 20s. And I didn't know what it was. I really didn't have a word for it. You know, this was before kind of mental health was where it is now and all the education around it. But it was it's all over my family system, you know? And I'm still trying to educate my aunts about their symptoms because they always end up at the hospital. And I'm like, you don't have anything wrong with you. Just talk to a therapist. <laughs> so I am very familiar with health anxiety, put it that way. Um, but, you know, there are, like I said, real things you can do to manage that. So I want to spend a little bit of time just talking about the causes of anxiety, okay? Just to kind of demystify this thing. And it's really simple. Anxiety can be caused by biological factors, just the way your chemistry is, you know, not something that you did or didn't do, not necessarily your fault. There's a strong kind of biological link, especially if there's a family history of anxiety in your family, just like depression, for example, or bipolar disorder, then, you know, it puts you at a higher risk to develop it. Doesn't mean that you will, but it's just something for you to know that if you do, if you did get it and there's a long history of that or some history of that, it is what it is, right? It's like getting, you know, other medical conditions that are hereditary or that can be passed on. The other thing is it can also be caused by environmental factors. And what are environmental factors? Basically, things that are outside of your biology. Stress, you know, chronic stress can create anxiety. Trauma can create anxiety. Just think about like if you had a stressful job and then maybe, you know, your partner's unemployed or you have a child with special needs and you have, you know, one or all or multiple stressors, that's gonna put your system into stress and then stress is known to create anxiety, okay? So there's many, many ways that this can take shape. I would even argue our current political environment has created a lot of stress, which then has created a lot of anxiety, you know, in, in people. The pandemic, the indefiniteness of this, the uncertainty of this, you know? Anxiety doesn't like the unknown. Anxiety, hates that. It hates being out of control. It hates not knowing. That's why it's so important to understand what this disease or condition is. Sorry, it's not a disease. It's a condition. And to, to find ways to address some of the symptoms. And I'm really a big proponent of mindfulness-based interventions when it comes to anxiety. And I'm going to talk about that a little later. And really grounding yourself and anchoring yourself on something bigger than you. Because there's a lot of things that existentially we don't have control over, okay? And if you're prone to having anxiety, that stuff is really gonna send you off the rails when there's a lot of unknowns, you know? So I wanna help fortify, help you guys fortify kind of your, your anxiety response by, I'm gonna walk through some steps, okay? But um, just a few more stats here. 
Interestingly, women are have a high. There are women are more prone to developing an anxiety disorder. You know, I, I'm not really sure what that is, but I think that's fascinating. Like, what is it about our biology? You know, or is it about our biology? Is it maybe our I don't know our psychological kind of process, the way we 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 perceive and experience things. Does that make us more prone to having an anxiety disorder? I don't really know, and nobody really seems to know truly why that is yet. But that is the statistic, and the the highest category of anxiety appears to be. There's some conflicting information that I read. One one study showed that it was specific phobias that seems to be kind of the higher rate of where people will, will have uh, develop an anxiety disorder, and I think the other one was generalized anxiety disorder. So I'm going to talk about that briefly. Okay. Um, so the types of anxiety disorders, uh, according to the the mental health and the psychological professionals. This is how we diagnose people, basically, if they meet criteria for these specific categories of anxiety. So general anxiety disorder is one of the most common ones, and it's also known as GAD, and that's basically if your anxiety is specifically that. Is it generalized? Do you have, does it show up in kind of a range of situations with a range of people and a range of issues? So it's not specific, right? You're just generally anxious, whether you're at your house, at your job, at a party. You just have this cloud of anxiety that follows you around wherever you are. Um, and it's not specific to anything. So that's what GAD is specifically. Um, then you have specific phobia, which is the anxiety that's specific to a situation. So for example, driving or... Um, I don't know, uh, flying, that that's when it becomes kind of, you know, where you start to show symptoms of unhealthy anxiety, where it's irrational, excessive, chronic, debilitating, limiting, um, out of proportion to the situation, and just creates a lot of negative symptoms in you and sometimes starts to affect the people around you. So fear of flying might be a specific phobia, for example, right? And I, I definitely can relate to that one, that's for sure. Um, so the other type of anxiety is separation anxiety. So I'm sure you guys have heard that before. And, you know, again, the, as the word suggests, it's when, this is typically for, for children that ex exhibit these behaviors, it's when they're separated from caretakers, from people that they feel is safe, um, sometimes, you know, younger adults, I see that in younger adults, but not often. Um, but that's generally what separation anxiety is. You're having a hard time adjusting to the absence of a person or persons that have helped you regulate yourself. Okay. Because I mean, the task of childhood into adulthood, that one of the most important tasks is to be able to self-regulate, meaning to be able to start to learn how to support yourself when maybe the people around you can't support you, right? Learn how to cope with stressors to, to, to the extent where it's not causing you too much harm or no harm at all, right? Healthy, your coping skills as we call it. And again, it's not about perfection here. Um, so I talked about GAD, I talked about specific phobias, separation anxiety, and then there's three more types. So the other one is panic disorder. So that's basically when your anxiety is coupled with panic. And what are the symptoms of panic? I mean, for those of you who've had panic disorder or who, who, who ha have experienced it or still have it, you know exactly what a panic is, right? But for some people, they don't really know. So that's when you might start to feel lightheaded, um, you know, you feel a little faint, you just feel off, you're sweating, you're just feeling weak, and some people actually faint and become unconscious temporarily. That's, that's how bad it can be, you know? Um, and for those types of anxiety disorders, I usually almost immediately will recommend some medication if it's happening enough so that we can actually get you more stable 
enough so you can actually use some of the tools that we're going to talk about in therapy, right? Like it's going to be hard for you to use the tools if you're physically not feeling stable enough. So uh, that's that. And then there's also, oops, where's my notes? There's also um, social anxiety disorder. So again, as the word suggests, that's when you are anxious about social situations. A lot of times people with social anxiety disorder have um, an irrational or excessive fear that they're being judged, that they're being um, evaluated, that somehow you know people are critiquing what they're saying, how they're saying it, how they appear. So there's a lot of self-consciousness around it. And, you know, oftentimes the thing is, yeah, someone might be kind of in passing, be thinking about what you're saying and how you're saying it. But for the most part, people are not fixated on that, right? For the most part, people are not um, really paying attention to you that much. Like most people are self-absorbed, you know, like that's part of the issue is we need to kind of get out of our own selves, right? So we help you if you have social anxiety disorder, we help you kind of learn new ways of evaluating a social situation, learn new ways of reframing your thoughts. And we do a little bit more of like exposure therapy, meaning, you know, I, for example, I'll suggest that somebody does something social for a small amount of time that's low stress so they can start to expose themselves to the perceived threat, which is again, what an anxiety disorder essentially is, right? Then there's um, agoraphobia. So basically, um, that's when you are having a hard time leaving your house uh, because of large crowds. Um, sometimes panic disorder will be categorized as with agoraphobia or without agoraphobia. So meaning, you know, do you have an anxiety disorder, but you're still able to leave your house and go into crowded places or large crowds and, and be okay because some people can and they have an anxiety disorder, whereas some people cannot do that. And um, one of the worst cases that I recall in my, in my practice is a very, very talented engineer from an Ivy League school, super smart, you know, had a lot of things going for him, very good looking, athletic. I mean, you would think like he would have no anxiety, right? No, I mean, this guy did not leave his house and it didn't help that he had a remote job so he didn't have to leave his house and he would order groceries and have them delivered before, this is way before it was cool to do that. <laughs> way before COVID, this is probably like at least eight years ago. And so, you know, that's how debilitating his anxiety has become, right? He had social anxiety, he had panic disorder with agoraphobia. And so, you know, eventually he was able to expand his life little by little, step by step, and medication was part of that. Um, because for something that severe, talk therapy sometimes is just not enough, you know, and you need something, especially if you have a history of it biologically, usually medication is really the most effective coupled with talk therapy when there's a largely biological basis for your anxiety. So hopefully I'm not losing you guys here. Thank you so much for watching. There's a lot of people here watching, paying attention. Um, let me know if you have any questions. Again, anxiety is very common and very treatable and there is normal and healthy anxiety and then there's anxiety okay um so just a couple more things here i want to talk i just want to touch on children and anxiety so we know that children suffer from anxiety and i believe the rates ha are increasing over time I'm not really sure exactly why that is, but I am theorizing that that may be because of some of the things that our young kids are being exposed to, you know, in, on TV, on social media, that may be a little bit too advanced for their developmental level, right? And then it starts to create 
body image issues, self-esteem issues, and so forth. That's just kind of a, my hypothesis right now. Um, but it's a serious situation, uh, the anxiety disorders that our kids are experiencing. According to the recent stats, or one of the stats I was reading, 25% of kids age 13 to 18, right? So these are teenagers. I'm not even talking about younger kids who are exhibiting symptoms of anxiety. So just between the, the 13 to 18 year old category in the United States, one study showed that 25% of those kids had an anxiety disorder. And again, that's the key word, disorder, not just an anxiety um, attack, meaning their symptoms reach the level of a clinical diagnosis. That's astounding. Like what are our kids worrying about, right? But again, some of it could be biological and then some of it could be environmental stress. That's the piece I'm concerned about. What is happening in their environment that is contributing or causing an anxiety disorder? Not just an anxiety response, but an anxiety disorder. So, you know, I think most Prof, uh, mental health professionals would agree with me that in the last year, the pandemic and homeschooling probably really um, exacerbated these numbers too. So just something to think about. If you're a parent, if you know somebody, you know, if you're a teacher, if you're, if you're an aunt, if you're a sister of somebody who's exhibiting these unhealthy signs of anxiety, please don't ignore it. The kids need us to intervene. The kids want us to intervene. They may not have the word for it. They may not be able to say, listen, I think I have anxiety, I need help. No, it's our job to recognize some of the signs and intervene. And the easiest thing to do is just validate them. Hey, honey, everything okay? I'm noticing, you know, maybe like you look, you look worried or you look anxious lately. You wanna talk about it? And then if it's chronic, right, they're having social problems, behavioral problems, academic problems, because usually those things will start to suffer. Talk to the teachers, you know, talk to their doctor. There's, you don't have to figure this all out on your own, especially if you're a parent who, who's not, who doesn't really understand this, right? Like, it's okay, it's okay. But just talk to somebody, ask for some help. Um, because there's a, there's a whole team here. This is a team approach, it's a community approach. But that's just my little plug for the kiddos because um, when I worked in school-based uh, systems, school-based care, there's so many kids with anxiety, it just broke my heart, you know? And it's just, it's just an awful way to exist in the world for some of you who, who know what I'm talking about. Like you're looking at the world through the eyes of fear, you're constantly screening everybody, your system is on edge, you're hyper vigilant. Sounds, sounds hard and exhausting. So that's my little plug for the kids. Help them out. Help yourself if you're suffering from any of this. And like I said, you know, I had a lot of anxiety growing up, so I know how difficult it can be. Um, so comorbidity, what does that mean? So in mental health, we talk a lot about co-occurring disorders because they seem to always have kind of a twin disorder is how I call it, right? Like a lot of mental health conditions usually have some other mental health condition that they are coexisting with. That's basically what comorbidity means. So with anxiety disorders, it has many twins. So one of the things that uh, is common when you have an anxiety disorder is bipolar disorder or ADHD. And for those of you uh, who don't know what that means, because we have some audience from um, other countries here, and thank you for being here. It's um, attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. Sometimes ADD, which is attention deficit disorder, so without the hyperactivity, right? Eating disorders are known to be comorbid, comorbid with anxiety. Substance abuse, that one makes real sense, right? Because a lot of times people are using substances or addictions to manage the anxiety or the symptoms of it, especially in social anxiety disorder. You know, you know when people say liquid courage, that's kind of a way to self-medicate, right? Trauma, in my opinion, 
Um, and again, I see this a lot in my practice because we specialize in trauma. A lot of times when you've had a severe trauma or chronic or multiple traumas, loss, neglect, anxiety disorder is often part of the clinical picture. And it makes sense, right? Because when you've had a lot of trauma, your system will get amped up and have a lack of trust for the people, places, and things around it. And so anxiety just, you know, kind of makes sense to, to, to develop that because it, again, right, the, the protective nature of anxiety is to protect you from perceived or from actual threat. But in PTSD, the anxiety is usually there to protect people from perceived threat. Like your, 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 the, the wires get crossed and your body can't discern you know, a real threat versus a perceived threat. Um, chronic pain. There's a lot of medical comorbidity, right? So a lot of times people with anxiety will complain of chronic pain. Fibromyalgia can be, can coexist with anxiety. Is it the chicken or the egg? I don't really know. But the medical conditions that are often um, comorbid with anxiety is chronic pain, fibromyalgia, um, headaches, IBS, that is so common, um, irritable bowel syndrome, a lot of digestive issues. And again, because your body is amped up, your body is just stressed. And so your organs are tensed. This is how serious chronic anxiety can be. This is what I mean by a cellular effect, like your body is tensed. And even in your sleep, you know, you could still be tense. You could still be holding on to things. That's why sometimes you might wake up and your jaw hurts, right? Because you're clenching or your, your neck or your back. So there's a lot of connection to physical, the, the, our physical bodies when we have an anxiety disorder. Um, muscle pain is another one unexplained somatic symptoms. So basically just things that are hurting or you can't really, nobody knows, the doctors can't find out what's really wrong, but something's hurting, something doesn't feel right, you're having unexplained symptoms. If the doctors can't figure out what it is and they, 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 they've ruled out possible medical conditions, they will refer you to a therapist instead because at that point they are going to, you know, be of the belief that your symptoms are probably more psychological than medical or, or physical. Does that make sense? So we get a lot of those referrals too of like, my doctor told me, you know, to come see you because I'm having IBS and we can't figure out what to do or I'm on medications and I'm still not getting a lot of relief, blah, 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 right? Like today I got one and this person has a seizure disorder and the doctor is thinking that it could be anxiety and stress induced, so they referred her to therapy as well. So a lot of times, anxiety will show up that way in your body, okay? Trauma does the same thing. The other thing too is sleep. That's a very, very common issue with anxiety disorders is your sleep is not very good. You either have a hard time falling asleep or you have a hard time staying asleep, or you have a hard time with both. And that's, that's a pain. Like, cause then you don't ever really get a full night's rest, right? Because your body again is having a hard time <sighs> relaxing. It's still preparing for some kind of event or catastrophe, even in your sleep. That's how deep this thing goes. Anxiety, and now I wanna move to end, I wanna move and talk about some coping skills and some strategies, right? So if you have the means to do it and you have the resources, then the number one thing I would want you to do if you're struggling with unhealthy anxiety or chronic anxiety is to talk to your doctor or a mental health professional. Just start there. You don't have to know how to explain this thing. We will help you. We will, that's our job is to ask you the right questions, right? And you can just show up being who you are and we will figure it out together, okay? 
If you don't have the resources, or if you also want to try this anyway, I think it'll still be helpful. Ecotherapy, also known as nature therapy. For some of you who've listened to me enough, you'll know that I'm such a big proponent of this. I talk about it all the time. Basically, it's using nature to ground you, to calm your nervous system. And this is something we've already known, right, innately. Civilizations have been using nature as a form of healing and for its therapeutic benefits, but now science is actually able to prove this now. There's actual research and study now, so it's not just something we know intuitively. Now data, scientific data is starting to show that it truly does lower blood pressure, it helps with anxiety, depression, diabetes, uh, cardiac patients, so all sorts of things, right? So go for a walk, look at the sky, take it in. You know, listen to the chirping of the birds. They say the greener it is, the better. Go to the beach, you know, go to the mountains, go to the woods, just walk around your neighborhood and be around it in however small way that you can. Make it a practice, it's super, super helpful and it doesn't cost you anything and it's very much within your reach right the other thing is meditation so don't don't get scared with that word i know some people are like oh my god there's no way i'm gonna do that <laughs> um you could just do it for one minute or two minutes okay close your eyes literally count to 60. nothing to solve nothing to fix nothing to direct your attention to other than counting. That in and of itself slows you down, centers you. And those 60 minute increments go a long, long way if you practice it enough, okay? There's a Calm app. There's all these resources on the internet if you want guided meditation, right? If you want someone to actually be literally telling you what to imagine and for how long, you know, just try it. Because again, our pace, the way we function these days is not the healthiest for us human beings. We are not wired to be processing the information at the rate that it is being given to us. You know, and it's certainly not healthy for us to be multitasking, believe it or not. It's actually really bad for our brain. And you're really not as productive as you think. And it's hard on your body. And these, these devices, as wonderful as they may be, too much of this stuff is actually really hard on us, cognitively speaking. Um, and there's, there's just too much going on. So these practices of calming the mind down have a direct effect on our levels of stress and anxiety, okay? So really, really important to, to pay attention to that. If you're having a hard time with quiet meditation or closed eye meditation, an interesting thing you can try is what's called walking meditation or conscious meditation, meaning you don't have to be sitting there with a gong listening to, you know, someone's voice or relaxing music. You could be at a grocery store. You could be waiting for your turn to pay. And in that moment, you could be meditating consciously. You could just be like, okay, I can feel the feet on the ground. Oh, my back seems tense. I can relax it a little bit. Oh. That woman is wearing a purple shirt. She has a yellow wallet. Like whatever it is you're experiencing or seeing, you can just start to take notice. So what that does is you're being more present, right? You're present in your body. And then when you're paying attention to someone else in that way, you're present to the situation, you know? And it's just a way not that you really care about what that lady's wearing, right? Like it's just a way to train your mind to slow down and be in the here and now. 
And again, this is a practice. It's not like you're going to do this once and you're going to feel magically better, right? These are all lifestyle things. These are all practices because it's about slowing the mind and the body. And that has a direct effect on our mood. So that's another thing. Mindfulness, you know, based interventions. So basically what I talked about, the meditation, sometimes just deep breathing. Three seconds in, three seconds out. Three seconds in, three seconds out. And what I tell my folks, people I support, is I say, you know, nothing to solve, nothing to fix. Nothing to solve, nothing to fix. Just breathe. And the reason I like to say that, nothing to solve, nothing to fix, is because the anxious mind, the anxious brain, is constantly screening and looking for the next thing to fix, the next thing to solve, the next threat to manage, the next whatever, right, to extinguish. So this is a practice of just, again, being in the moment and allowing yourself not to worry about a damn thing. And the more anxious you are, the more you have to actually keep telling yourself that because you're not naturally inclined to do that. Remember, your brain is operating on fear. So that's why I love that practice. Just breathing three seconds in, exhale three seconds out, try it for two minutes, then go for three if you can, go to five, just saying the same mantra, you know? And the more you do it, the easier it gets and the better and better it's gonna feel, okay? So those are some of my kind of quick tips, ecotherapy, meditation, walking meditation, open eye meditation, um, mindfulness-based interventions with a deep breathing, nothing to solve, nothing to fix, therapy if you can afford it, medication when it's clinically indicated and you can afford it, um, healthy support network. Join a support group if you don't have people in your circle who are healthy enough. There's a lot of support groups. Support, 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 I cannot stress that enough, is really, again, a protective factor for our mental health, overall health. Um, we all want connection. We all want to feel like we belong. We all want to have significance and meaning. And so searching for that, cultivating that in healthy ways. Um, pet therapy is another one. And lastly, I want to talk about a study I recently read. Uh, uh, I, I forgot what it's called, but it's about the study of awe. A-W-E. Awe. I actually talked about this at my radio interview last weekend with um, Mr. Noah Dingley. It's available on the podcast if you want to listen to it, uh, called How to Cope Now. Basically, the study showed that awe reduces levels of anxiety and depression among many other things and it makes us more empathic and it makes us more kind and generous <sighs> love it love it and i know this to be true because i feel that when i'm in awe so what is awe awe is to be in wonder to be surprised by something to be excited about something to feel kind of the, the, the pleasantness of something. It could be a child laughing or playing with your pet or seeing a beautiful flower or a beautiful sunset or the smell of coffee, right? It could be all these little things that are happening around you day in, day out, and it's not, you're not paying attention. You're not present enough to experience it and appreciate it. And those little things, those moments of awe are known to over time really create a sense of wellness and satisfaction in our lives, okay? And that's what I mean by a spiritual practice. Like for, for those of you who have chronic anxiety, there's gonna be the mental health piece to it, right? That's gonna be necessary. Then your lifestyle stuff, your coping skills, and I would argue your spiritual practice. And the spiritual practice is really gonna serve all of us. Meaning, those of us who fall under a chronic uh, anxiety pattern and those of us who just have, you know, 
normal anxiety based on what's happening in the world around us lately, a spiritual practice, whatever that means to you, whatever God or whoever God is to you or the divine or the universe, whatever it is, whatever, whatever can anchor you outside of yourself, basically. I really urge you to cultivate that because the truth is, and I know it's hard because I try to practice this every truth is there's only really so much we have control over at best case scenario most of the things we plan for will come to fruition it will work out but at worst case it won't and life's gonna throw you a curveball you know and we hope that there's something bigger that anchors us in those moments so that's pretty much all i want to say today thank you guys for listening um i hope this was helpful i hope it was informative i hope it was empowering and i hope that you you know are inspired to take action take charge try some of the tips i talked about and just know that it's not your fault you're not alone, you're not going crazy, you know, if you have an anxiety disorder. And there are things you can do now to start to help your situation and really uh, help you effectively manage some of these symptoms. So hopefully, um, you know, like I said, you guys are inspired to take action. As always, thank you for your time and attention. I know it's very important and precious. And thank you for listening. Let me know if there's any topics you want me to cover. And um, I'm happy to, to do that if it's within my kind of scope of practice. So that's it, you guys. Thanks again. Like I always say, be well, be gentle, get mental, because we all have Thanks for joining us today on Get Mental with Cecile Aarons. To learn more about Cecile, become a sponsor or guest on Get Mental, or if you have any questions about mental health, visit TranscendTherapyCA.com. That's TranscendTherapyCA.com. Join us next week at this same time for more talk on all things mental health on Get Mental with Cecile Aarons.